If someone were to ask you, what rules do you need to follow to be a Christian, what would you say? What are the rules that de designate the life of a follower of Jesus? What are those rules? See, because really at the core, the heart of a lot of religion and the life of faith, a lot of us kind of want to know that answer, right? We want to know just what is expected of me? What are my instructions? And some of you, some of you might be achievers on your Enneagram. You're kind of one of those, you know, if you're like me, it's like just whatever it is, I just tell me what I need to do so I can do it well, right? So some of us want to know what are the rules so that we can excel at it and do it right. That's some of you. You're like, yeah, just tell me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet expectations and exceed them. Some of you, kind of as I, I did in school, where I want to know the rules so I know the minimum expectations. Just tell me what's enough so I can at least measure up to what's enough. And then I'm not trying to be a super Christian. I'm not trying to get my name in the Bible. Just what do I need? What's the minimum entry requirements? I just want to at least meet that. That's where some of us are at. The truth is we like to know the rules. We like to know what the instructions are. We want to be able to do what is right often. But following instructions are something that some of us aren't so good at. I know, again, for me growing up, uh, they kept sending me to the principal to talk about that. I don't know why. Just to, I even remember all the way back to third grade. Everyone remember the test that it started with this. The teacher would give it out, and it said, the very first thing on the top of the page said, read all the instructions before you answer any questions. Anyone ever see this? Okay, just a couple of us. Yeah, all right, good, good. And then the next question would be like, hey, what's five plus eight? And ask you like 20 questions. And the very end, it would say, now that you've read all the instructions, go back to the beginning and just write your name. That's all you have to do. And that got me every time <laughs> you'd think I'd learn. It's because I'm just like, I don't care what the instructions are. I just need to get this done. So some of us aren't that good at following instructions sometimes. In fact, there are, uh, you've probably seen some of these. I'm going to share in just a moment some images with you of kids when they receive instructions from teachers, how they interpreted them and followed the instructions but kind of did it their own way. And some of you have probably seen these. They circulate online. You know, when you're supposed to be productive at work, you've probably been looking at these. So I wanted to show you a few of how sometimes following instructions doesn't always go the way planned. So here's the first one. Yes, the instructions. Name the shapes. Thank you, Hope. She named the shapes. Bob, Sam, Tedison. <laughs> I don't know where that name came from, but yeah, followed, she followed the instructions. She named the shapes. I like her. <laughs> okay, what's the next one? Let's look at the next one. Yeah, write the words in alphabetical order. Took me a while to figure that one out. If you write apple in alphabetical order, that's A-E-L-P-P. -P. It's actually a lot more work being done here. <laughs> that is very smart. Cool. Next one. <laughs> Draw what you look like in 100 years. <laughs> I love Warren. He's like, what would I look like 100 years from now? I'll show you. <laughs> so good. How about the next one? Yes. Write the word out three times. Okay. <laughs> out, out, out. And hold on. Before you go to the next one, the last one here. This one really isn't like following the instructions, but I just thought it was a good way to end. So let's see the last one. Okay, find the answer. Jesus is always the answer. I love what the teacher said. 
Not on this question. <laughs> it's always good when you have a teacher with a sense of humor with them as well. So sometimes when we think about following the instructions, one of the problems is we're all going to look at it different ways. Maybe interpret it our own way. Well, as we jump back into our series in the book of Acts, we're in the series called Unstoppable. We're looking at the unstoppable nature of the church and how from the very beginning, there's this movement of Jesus followers that started in a culture that was against them and how they faced these cultural uh, opposition. They faced other religious opposition. They even had their lives on the line and many lost their lives. They faced internal opposition as they were trying to figure things out. And through it all, the church was unstoppable, and we're part of that ancient tradition till this day. But what we're going to see today in Acts chapter 15 is as the church was growing and expanding, and more and more cultures started to give their lives to Christ, they realized, oh wow, we look very different. Not only is it just people who grew up in the Middle East, it's not just people who grew up with a Jewish background, now we're bringing in Greek culture. And not just centered around kind of that region, but now it's into Greece, into what we know today as Turkey and northern Africa, eventually into Italy. All as the movement is expanding, the question that came up is, how do we know what should it look like to be a Christian? What are the rules that will designate who we are? And that's the debate that we're going to see today in Acts chapter 15. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles there. And as we do it, allow me to pray. God, we thank you that you are a God of grace and you're good. We thank you that in this place this morning you'll meet us here. And even there's some today who are here maybe feeling like, oh, great. We're talking about rules. I know that I'll never measure up. Maybe some are here today and they're burdened. Maybe some are skeptical. Maybe some just feel the weight of the world. And Lord, we know you're present, but we ask that you make your presence known indoors, outdoors, online. God, meet us in this place and speak to us today. In your name, amen. All right, Acts chapter 15. So for those of you who like to take notes, and if you have your life journals and you like to write in them, I'm gonna, we're going to go through 35 verses, so we're not going to read them all today. But first we're going to outline the story of what happens in these verses, and then we're going to spend the end of our time to explain what does this matter to us. And to, to show you the outline, let me just give it to you really quickly for those of you who like to take your notes. Verses 1 through 5, it starts off, and it's the question. So this is the question that they're going to address. And, and really, if you want to know the question, is does faith free us from the law? So that's kind of the first section. The next section in verses 6 through 21-ish is the debate. So that's, if we were to outline it, that's what I put right there. The debate is the next one. And again kind of parentheses, I put the case for freedom. And then the last, the 22 through 35, is really the decision and the response. So that's kind of the outline that we're going to look at. And as I said, we're going to go through the story relatively quickly, and then we'll jump back and ask the question, what does this mean for us? So let's jump in. Acts chapter 15, verse 1 says this. Some men came down from Judea and, and began teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So just right there, kind of see what we're dealing with. If you Imagine you're a, a grown adult, you're from the Greek culture, you're a new follower of Jesus, and now someone said, oh yeah, one more thing, you need to be circumcised if you're going to be saved. This brings up some questions, let me just tell you that. 
And after Paul and Barnabas had a heated argument with them and debate with them, the brothers determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. Therefore, after being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they were bringing great joy to all the brothers and sisters. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, they stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to keep the law of Moses. So here's the question that they're dealing with. Once you become a Christian, does that faith set you free from the law? Now, what's the law we're talking about? It's interesting. You would think, oh, it's, they're talking about the whole Old Testament. Well, in a way, they are. But the law we're referring to here is, when, when we often talk about it, it's, they would say the law of Moses, it does include the Ten Commandments which is kind of the moral law, but often what they're actually going to is a lot more of they're dealing with a cultural laws here. I mean, the question about circumcision, that has nothing to do with the Ten Commandments. This is a sign of covenant on the nation of Israel for a specific purpose. So included with that was not just, oh, they just need to be circumcised. It was, if you, you have to take the whole law. That means you have to eat the food we eat. You have to... Uh, Wear the clothes we wear. You have to have your hair the way we have our hair. You have to have the turbans that we wear. In other words, you have to look culturally like we do because that's what the law tells us to do, which was intended to set them apart from the other nations. So they're saying, okay, it's great that, that you're becoming followers of Jesus, but hey, we follow the law. It's really important to us. So you need to do it too. So the question really that's being raised is, is that true? Do we have to follow the whole law? Are we set free from that? And I love that it starts with they had a heated debate, but notice it didn't end with fighting and fists. They said, let's go get help. Let's go find the answer. So that is the question they're addressing, is do we need to follow this law? Now, the next part, starting in verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together. They looked into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, he testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as also he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them Cleansing their hearts by faith. If you're a note taker, you like to write in your Bibles, I would underline that and understand that. Just as God gave them the Holy Spirit, he gave, or as he gave us the Holy Spirit, he gave it to them. And he made no distinction. No distinction. Since this is the case, why are you putting God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our forefathers nor we could bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they also are. Notice what's going on here. What's the debate? I mean, look, look at the response. Peter is not saying, you're right, well, we have to be saved by the law. We have to, we, that's what's going to make us holy, but not them. No, he's, he keeps going back to, listen, we're saved by grace. 
just like they are. We're saved because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. We have the law culturally being Jews, but that's not what ever saved us. He says, why do you put God to a test? Isn't that an interesting question? How is he testing God? How's that putting God to a test by putting the, a burden on someone else? Wouldn't that be putting them to the test? But for some reason, you're testing God. In other words, you're saying, is his grace enough to save? Is his Holy Spirit enough to transform lives? Do you think that he needs our help as humans to somehow become the type of people he wants us to be? You're putting God to the test as if his grace is not enough. His work on the cross was not enough. Why are you adding a burden to him? Because we believe we're saved through grace. And then he goes, and by the way, you're putting a yoke upon them that not even our forefathers or we could bear. You know how burdensome the law has been to us. You know how difficult it's been to follow it. You know that we have failed. Why would you have someone else fail too? Probably goes to the nature of who we are as humans, right? Misery loves company. It's that whole idea like, well, if I have to endure this, then you have to endure this. Well, it's not fair to have different rules for different people. You know, we were even debating it and talking about this in the teaching team, and we were recalling the story of the parable where Jesus talks about a, a landowner who hires some workers for the day, and people who started at the beginning of the day, he said, I'm going to pay you this wage. And then a few hours later, he hired some more workers. He says, I'm going to pay you the same wage, just work the rest of the day. And he does it throughout the day until finally he hires some people to work the last five minutes. And he says, I'll pay you the same as I paid everyone all day today. Same, same rate. You worked one minute or all day. Now, you don't want to be the guy who gets picked at the end of the day, right? That's what I would want. Because the nature of us is it's not fair. It's not fair. But the parable was about the goodness of the owner. When we think of faith, it's so easy to say, wait, but I live my life this way. It's not fair that God would save this person. It's not fair. And this was the debate that the Jews were having. It's not fair. But the debate really comes down to what do we believe about the grace and the love of God? So how do they respond? Let's look at verse 13, picking up from there. After they stopped speaking, James responded, saying, Brothers, listen to me. Simon, that's also Peter, has described to us how God first concerned himself about taking a people from for his name from among the Gentiles. The words of the prophets agree with this. And then he goes on to quote a, a section from Amos chapter 9. And for those of you who like the kind of deeper intricacies of Scripture, I will say the quote that he uses doesn't match up probably with directly with your uh, Old Testament because he's quoting from the Greek, the Septuagint. So if I just said, was speaking Greek to you a second ago, just smile for a minute. For those of you who like that kind of intricacies, he's quoting the translation of Amos chapter 9, according to the Septuagint, which uses slightly different words. Uh, but the point is the same, that God is building up a remnant of people from all the nations. So what James is really saying is, look, what we're hearing about, God has been doing all along. He's been telling us about it. And we could look at many other verses, verses in Isaiah saying that Messiah will come and will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. 
can look all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where it calls Abraham to be a people and says, you will be a blessing to all the nations. So the point is this. James is saying, listen, what's happening, having Gentiles become believers and followers, this is, this is, we should know better. This has been coming all along. Therefore, verse 19, it's my judgment that we do not cause trouble for those, gen- for those from the Gentiles who are turning to God. But we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by the idols, from acts of sexual immorality, from what's been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has those who preach him in every city since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Does anyone think that's kind of an interesting list? Like, let me give you a list. Um, okay, nothing that's been given to idols. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, nothing that's been strangled, don't eat that, or anything containing the blood. Oh, yeah, and then no sexual immorality. It's like, where did you get this list from? And his response was, for, from ancient generations, Moses is being preached in all of these cities where Gentiles are becoming followers. So this is the hint of what he's talking about. See, as more and more people were becoming Christians, they were being Christians, and there's two things happening. One, they're being, becoming Christians largely around a Jewish population who is bringing them the message of Jesus. And the Jewish population, some of those rules that were just listed here were ones that were cultural to set them apart, but some of them were part of their morality. And saying, hey, um, if we're to reflect the image and character of God, we want to understand what that looks like. And a lot of the Gentiles who became believers literally had to be told certain things like, hey, that doesn't really reflect the character of God, that lifestyle. We find it in the book of Galatians and in Ephesians where Paul literally tells them, hey, no more, once you're a Christian, it's not a good idea for you to hang out in these love feasts. The love feasts were, I, I, I won't describe them on a Sunday morning, but it's kind of like an obscure, bad Tom Cruise movie, kind of, you know, underground Paris gathering that you hear about on the news every once in a while. There were these love feasts that were very common, and it was a lot of sexual immorality going on. That was part of their way of life. And when they became Christians, they were saying, hey, l- let, me just, let me just point out a few things about you that might not reflect the character of God. And then the other ones, hey, these are things that were offensive to your Jewish brothers and sisters. So it sounded good to all of them. They all agreed. They be, they, it seemed good on verse 22 to appoint apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men to go down and to send this message to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Let's jump down to uh, 24. This is part of their response. Since we've heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have confused you by their teaching, upsetting your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind. Now, I want you to get this. This means the Pharisees became of one mind with them. They did the hard work to come to a conclusion. We became of one mind to select men to send with you with this message. And they went and sent the message that was already made. If you can look at it in verse 28. Seem good to us, to the Holy Spirit, and to lay upon you no greater burden than what's essential. That is, that you abstain, abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from acts of sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves free of these things, you'll do well. Farewell. <laughs> Love the ending. Oh, that's, that's good. If you can do that, that's great. Now, let's, what's the point? What do we learn? That's the big key for us. 
How do we respond to this? And there's one big theme that I want us to understand today, and it's this. Grace gives freedom. The big thing that we are learning is grace gives freedom. It's the grace of God that was poured out on those who are culturally Jewish, the grace of God that was poured out on those who are culturally Greeks, grace of God that was poured out on, and to us who are culturally vote Democrat, who are culturally vote Republican, who are culturally vote all the other ways, culturally don't vote, but it's grace of God is poured out on all the nations. And that grace gives us freedom. It gives us freedom from these laws that were placed upon the Jewish nation. It gives us freedom to walk in a new way of life. Now, let me dive a little deeper and talk about why this matters. I'm going to give you two kind of churchy words. Ready for them? You've heard them before probably. If you haven't, here they are. Justification and sanctification. Don't you just feel more holy right now just saying those words? It makes you kind of feel like, oh, yeah, I'm seminary. This is smart. So justification is this word that basically means that God has made me just or right in his eyes. So it's a process of what makes you right in the eyes of God, okay? Sanctification is the, the word that's what basically makes you set apart, or the process, one author said, of the outside of your life catches up what's, what already happened on the inside. Sanctification is becoming holy, the process of becoming more in the image of God, okay? You already are holy, because of justification. Sanctification is that process of learning to walk in that new reality. Tracking with me? So, the method of your justification determines your method of sanctification. I told you, I'm getting it in a little seminary class today. If you think what makes you just in the eyes of God is what you do, your ability to follow rules and follow laws, if that's what makes God pleased with you, that's what justifies your life, then it would only make sense Then what makes you holy, what makes you more in his image is to follow rules. So the method has to be the same. So if over here I follow rules to make myself right with God, then I would, of course, I, I can't then just go, well, no more, it doesn't matter anymore. And conversely... If what makes us justified in the eyes of God is what he has done, it's his life in us, it's faith in the work of Christ, that's what gives me my justification, makes me right in the eyes of God, and that's what we believe, then what makes me set apart is the same thing. It's my life in Christ. It's his work in me. And walking in that. Colossians chapter 2, verse six, 6 and 7 says this. So then, just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. In other words, what he's saying is just as you received Christ, you were justified in him, so walk your sanctification in him. It's not now add rules and change the way you were first made right in the eyes of God. So grace gives us freedom. It frees us from the set of rules and instructions. And that is actually good news. Anyone with me with that? Amen? Now, some of you, does that also scare you? To say you're freed from rules? 
It may not scare you, but how about, does it scare you for your kids? You want to be free from rules, but you don't want your kids to. You don't want the people around you to be free from rules. Because I know that in me, I'm, my struggles are, they're, they're not a big deal. It's your struggles I'm worried about. Kidding. So if grace gives freedom, then here's the next question. What is freedom? What do we mean? A couple of quick thoughts. One, freedom that we're talking about is freedom that's rooted in love. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 says this. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's saying your freedom is rooted in love. This is why those instructions were the ones they gave him. They said, hey, why I want you to abstain from things that are sacrificed to idols. Because when you're around your Jewish brothers, this was so offensive to them that it actually caused them to stumble in their faith. Why we wanted you to not eat things with the blood still in it. No medium rare steak for you. Thank God we're freed from the law. Because this was offensive to your brothers and the freedom is rooted in love. Why would you want to walk and be offensive to others? Okay, I have a confession for you. Some of the music I like, you probably wouldn't. I like rap music. I like Eminem. He's one of my favorites. I think he's really good. Sorry. No, it would offend you. I love Eminem. He's talented. See? I'm being judged right now, but I walk in the freedom of Christ. Now, when we make the playlist for Sunday mornings, I don't play Eminem. For lots of reasons, but one of them is, of course, it could be offensive to many people. Yes, my roots are back in the 80s with Yo! MTV raps. Come on, anyone with me on that? Anyone remember that? Oh, boy. Okay, where are my people? <laughs> That's a pretty superficial issue. But walking in love with my brothers and sisters would say, of course, I'm not going to impose this on someone else. And actually, there's parts of it where I'd say, hey, I'm not even going to listen to this and have it influencing my life. And when I download it, I download the clean version. Because I heard he cusses on some songs. <laughs> because freedom is rooted in love. It's not saying, well, th I, I can deserve this. This is for me. No, it's, you know what? Because of my love for others, my freedom is rooted in that. And ultimately, I care more about you than my own freedom. And so I'm willing to give up certain things out of love. So freedom's rooted in love. Next thing is this. Freedom comes from walking by in the Spirit. Our freedom comes from walking in the Spirit. If we don't have the Spirit of God, then that's where freedom gets really messy. You with me on that? If we just say, hey, no, we don't have any instructions. There are no rules. We're in Christ. Great. And then if we live our old selves, our old lives in our flesh, that's where it gets messy. But Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, again, he's writing to these same people in Antioch who are trying to figure this out. He says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, 
So you're not to do whatever you want. If, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So he's actually saying, listen, you don't need the law because if you walk in the power of the Spirit, you're, you're going to desire what the Spirit desires. We don't have to put a burden on you and say this is what it looks like because we're learning to surrender and walk our lives in the power of the Spirit. I think as Matt has, has said several times, it's not, there's never a time when if you're in the power of the Spirit, do you wake up in the morning and say, God, I'm so grateful for you and your grace and how good you are. I'm so grateful for what you did on the cross. I'm, I'm going to go out and sin. That's how I'm going to, that's my response. You're so good that I'm just going to go and, and defame your name and just take life from others. Yeah, that's, that's how I want to respond to God's grace. It makes no sense. But when we walk in the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, we're not under the law. We're under the grace of God. And our hearts desire what the Spirit desires. Does that mean that if you ever sin, that you must not have the Spirit in you? No. We all struggle. Our flesh, we're always going to battle between our old selves and our new selves. And your struggle is probably not the same as mine, and mine's different than yours, and people next to you probably have a different struggle. But the point of this, oh, the point of God's people is that we're representing His character. That we're demonstrating His ways to the world around us. And that happens when we're living in the power of the Spirit. It's the only way. Jesus came and lived a perfect life and showed us exactly what a life lived walking in step with the Spirit looked like. That's why we want to live our lives like Jesus. But that comes through the Spirit's work in us. That's that process of sanctification. And it sets us free from the law. There's an example given by a, a guy named Ian Thomas. He once said this, he said, there's one law in the world that I've never been able to break. It's called the law of gravity. The law of gravity, I, I've never been able to, get to break that. I'm told, however, that there is another law that is higher. It's the law of aerodynamics. If only I'd be willing to commit myself in total trust to this new law, this higher law, then that law will set me free from the old law of gravity. By faith, I step into an airplane. I sit back in the rest of faith, and as those mighty engines roar to life, I discover that the new law of aerodynamics sets me free from the law of gravity. The example is our new law, the power of the Holy Spirit in us. As we give ourselves to a life of faith, as we surrender to the Spirit in our lives, it sets us free from the old law of rules and regulations. We do these things. Because it's a higher law. It's the law that transforms. So, freedom's rooted in love. Freedom gives, comes by walking by the Spirit. And finally, freedom ultimately brings life. If you want to know what freedom looks like, it brings life. Think of all the things when, we, when, when I say, oh, there are no rules for you to follow. Some of you might think, immediately go like, yeah, but what about, what about this and that? What about all the little sins? How many of those actually is you indulging in freedom? Or is that walking in bondage of your old self? See, our freedom in Christ actually brings life. Again, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 says this, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. See, we are set free because the freedom that we live in the Spirit is actually it brings life to others. It doesn't take. It doesn't take life from others. So if you wonder if what freedom looks like, is it dangerous? Freedom in the Holy Spirit is not a dangerous thing. It's a beautiful thing. It brings life. Who would have a problem with, oh, I'm walking in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? What's wrong with those things? Those are life-giving. quick example would be, consider the Ten Commandments, for example. Let's consider the moral law. Many of those take life from others. Steal, adultery, murder. When you point it out, you say, oh, those are taking. Those are wrecking relationships. Those are taking life. But the law of the Spirit in us gives life. One more to think about. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 says this. Now in the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us now have unveiled faces. We contemplate the Lord's glory. In other words, his character, his likeness. And we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is in the Spirit. Our lives are being transformed into ever-increasing glory, or the likeness of God. From what? From the law? No, from freedom. From the freedom of the Spirit at work in us, and that gives life. Invite the worship team to start finding their way back up. And I want to end with this quote here, again from Major Ian Thomas. He said this Godliness is not the consequence of your capacity to imitate God, but it's the consequence of his capacity to reproduce himself in you. It is not self righteousness, but Christ righteousness. The righteousness that is by faith, a faith that is re- based on a renewed dependence upon God, releases his divine action to restore the marred image of the invisible God. Godliness, this idea of walking in the Spirit, is not a consequence of your capacity to imitate God. Have you ever been burned out trying to be a Christian? Have you ever felt like, I just keep failing at this? I mess up over and over again. There's certain areas of my life I just can't get right. I try to be godly. I try to be holy. I'm working so hard at it. I'm an achiever for crying out loud. I can do it. But you feel burdened. Maybe there's just that one area. Or maybe for you, you don't feel burdened, but you feel self-righteous. You say, why should I live this way if the other Christians don't? I've been there. I've totally been there. I'm there right now. Look at it. No, I'm not. But I've been there. Where I say, Lord, I don't understand. I look around at some of my brothers and sisters in Christ and I look at their lives and think, why don't they get it? Why are they living that way? 
Why don't they just figure out that I've got it figured out and do what I do? Oh, self-righteousness. So godliness is not the consequence of your ability to imitate God. It's not based on your self-righteousness. It's God's ability to reproduce himself in you and in me. To make us into something wholly different and new. So what rules do we follow? Let's follow Christ. Let's give our lives to him and allow the spirit to work and transform us into who, what is already true because of what Christ has done. As we end our time, I want to um, just end with this final song and pray for you as we do it, as we, uh, as we pray, as we think about what God is doing in our lives. I want to just give you the space to just let him speak. So if you'd bow your heads with me and allow me to pray for you outside or online, wherever you are in here. God, we come to you now as people who don't often get it right. Sometimes, Lord, we come to you as people who our lives don't reflect your image or glory at all. Lord, sometimes maybe our lives do, but we're striving and we keep falling in the habit of relying on our own power and our own strength, and we forget that we have all we need through your spirit to change change us and make us into something new. So God, we surrender that to you now. We surrender that battle, and we ask that you would transform and shape our hearts and our lives into your image. Make us what's our, into what's already true of us because of what you've done. And Lord, set us free from self-righteousness. And Lord, set us free from a reliance on ourselves and not you. Have your way in this church. Have your way in our lives. Just as the first church learned that freedom was part of the good news, Lord, would we receive that today? Do your work in us as you do over and over and over again from the very beginning to now. How you continue to remind us of your truth and how you show up. So we thank you. We ask you to move in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.